ow, ow, oh, ow, it's ow, 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 it's ow. Oh, blind by seven Ooh. strides. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. Oh. oh. So apparently he will do anything for money. Welcome back to another episode of 1980s Now, a weekly examination of the importance of 1980s pop culture and its influence today. My name is Will, and joining me as always are my friends and co-hosts, Kat and John. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. Hey, howdy. I'm so glad you remembered your little spiel this yeah. week, Will. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I appreciate your help last time. That was no problem. No problem. Getting me through that. <laughs> hey, uh, and also don't forget, in addition to his co-hosting duties here, John hosts his very own podcast, Gen X Grown Up. Oh, oh, that reminds me. I've got, yeah. I've got yeah. a shirt on today. <gasps> you have a shirt too? Look yeah. at you two. Look, look oh at you two. Oh my God. I can't. With your, your Gen Christmas X Grown Up t-shirts too. on? Wow. Oh, wow. Totally I'm blown away. Yeah. That's amazing. This you is guys. Fun. And it's Christmas <laughs> colors. Oh my God. Isn't that really cool? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm wearing oh, a Gen great. X MTV inspired shirt. You can get your own if you go to the Gen X mm-hmm. Grown Up store on T Public. I got mine. They do come in other colors besides Christmas colors. Yes, you they do. Yeah. <laughs> but you, sure. you guys are very elfin. Like, we, you look like, like you're working at Santa's thing. workshop. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just need those pointy hats. Which one of you wants to be a dentist? I can't, I can't yeah. remember which I one. I guess I'm on my own now. You know, I have one other thought about Jenny's growth, but I want to, I want to tell you everybody what's oh. on the show before we get too far here. Cause on today's oh, yeah. show, we're going to be speaking with John Walsh. No, not that mm. one. Not the one that <laughs> saves children. This mm-hmm. one's the guy's doing something much more important. I'm talking about John Walsh, the award-winning author and filmmaker, the trustee of the Ray Harryhausen foundation. I think that's so super mm. cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, if you recall, I spoke with John last year about his then new book, uh, Escape from New York, the official mm-hmm. story of the film. It's such a cool oh, book. Right. It had mm-hmm. stories in it that hadn't been told, uh, had photos in it that hadn't been seen because since it's an official book, he has access to the archives mm-hmm. uh, of, the, of the studio, uh, all of the uh, behind the scenes material. And he gets, mm. of course, he's able to get interviews, score interviews with the filmmakers as well. Well, this year he's, he's just came out in the UK and it's just to be published here in the US uh, at the end of December. Doctor Who and the Daleks, the official story mm. of the films. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. these two films came out in uh, 65 and 66, I believe. But that said, they have a couple of interesting uh, ties to the 1980s that, uh, hey, I love talking to John anyway, so I didn't need an excuse mm-hmm. to do that. But uh, we get we get into that a little bit. Um, oh, and I should just disclose right now. Kat and John weren't available at the time to talk to him, so I, I spoke to him by myself. Mm-hmm. So they'll be hearing it too for the first time. But anyway, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's this character Milton Sabotsky that I learned about only from reading John's book, mm-hmm. who, who was an expat, an American expat who lived in England, who got the rights to Doctor Who to make these movies. And uh-huh. he then went on in the 80s to also produce uh, a number of different Stephen King novels, including Cat's Eye and Maximum Overdrive. Mm-hmm. This is like this oh. guy you've never heard of who's accomplished quite a bit by just being a hustler and being in the right <laughs> place at the right time. We talk a little bit about that too. Wow. Anyway, before, cool. before that, though, we're going to review current news stories related to 1980s media, including, this sounds real, <laughs> I'm scraping the barrel, guys, I'm telling you. I don't know, is it the holidays? Again, if you're related to the holidays, right? I mean, I One of them, I was like, huh, what is this? 
What I see these as is jumping off points for us to talk about other stuff. Okay. See there? That's, that's what's going to happen. You got this. Do it. The 1980, folks, stay with us. It gets increasingly better. The 1984 computer code that you probably used this week. Uh, mm. A new 1980s era novel based on an unusual pastime or stunt. Uh, I don't know what to say. Uh, the Dark Tower is getting a series. Remember that uh, those novels that kicked off in the 1980s? And mm-hmm. we've got a director now for Ghostbusters Afterlife. And it's the first mm. time yep. it's not a, uh, I was going to say not a Venkman, not a Reitman. <laughs> yep. All right. There's time codes in the uh, notes if you want to skip around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, nice. I want, look, I, you know, I was thinking about Gen X growing up John's other show and um, in, in our mm-hmm. show, because there's, all, there's these neat little, um, hmm, I don't know, like uh, overlaps that happen. These sort of, you know, things that happen mm-hmm. where, mm-hmm. cause I listen to John's show and I, we prepare ourselves separately, but sometimes mm-hmm. there's just little funny or interesting things that coincide. And uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to bring up this one thing. So John on our show, a couple of weeks ago, it was the episode, uh, I think right before Thanksgiving, we were talking about how Sylvester Stallone turned down, I think it was $36 million to do mm-hmm. Rambo right. 4. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And John said he could relate to turning down money. Uh, and he said uh, this. <laughs> you know, in, uh, later in my life now, as I get older, yeah. I'm realizing that it's, you can't just get paid. There's not enough money to get paid to get kicked in the teeth. If there's something mm-hmm. you just really don't want to do, mm-hmm. there is a limit. Wow. So, so John won't necessarily do anything for money. Right. <laughs> so cut to just a few days later on the Gen X Grown Ups YouTube channel. I'm going to play you something for you. And I guarantee oh. you, although it sounds really sexy, what's happening is not. Oh. And we could talk about that in a moment here. This is John mm. on his uh, YouTube channel. Oh, ow, 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 oh, ow, 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 I think I gotta wrap it up. My, my stomach hurts. Like, oh, oh my so gosh. really? Big time. Yeah. <clears throat> you okay there? Yeah, I, I gotta go to the bathroom. I gotta go. All right, okay. all right, go back. Go. John, whatever you were doing on that uh, clip there, were you doing it for money? I was. I was. I was. I, it, it probably largely in part because my my situation changed. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Perspective. <laughs> yeah. Like part yeah. of that, you're, uh, you're, what you said about Stallone was, look, $36 million or $136 million, it wasn't going to change his lifestyle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it turns out eating incredibly hot sauce on a YouTube live stream, uh, mm-hmm. it, 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 yep. that could be life-changing money when you're unemployed, which I became yeah. a few days after I said that about Stallone. Yeah. <laughs> Although, if I had $36 million in the bank, I wouldn't have been eating hot sauce. No. I'll admit that. So. <laughs> <laughs> no need to mess around with our sauce. Gosh, oh goodness. So John on occasion does these videos on YouTube where, look, they, he does constant videos on YouTube, but among them he does uh, these lives where they're playing video games and doing other fun things. And this one he was, if folks contributed a certain amount of money, he would take, he would consume a certain hot sauce and they got increasingly mm. higher. I think the highest level was something like 3 million Scoville units altogether oh. or something like that. It's Yeah, something like that. It's Time like three seven. parts, <laughs> 1 million capsaicin and all these other habaneros and ghost mm-hmm. peppers. And yeah, it was, I, yeah, it was hot. <laughs> I can't, look, I like spicy stuff, but I don't like stuff that hurts me. Mm. Um, mm. And it really, it's like getting a chemical burn from what I understand, right? Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They, they mm-hmm. even say, like, I'll often, uh, I'll, on those streams, I'll eat it sauce side down on the little cracker. And they're like, yeah. don't do that. It'll burn your tongue. And I'm like, nope, give the people what they paid for. Yeah. They paid to see me suffer. I'm going to do it. <laughs> hey, look, if you'd like to give John a dollar to get him to eat three million Scoville units, 
<laughs> I hope that was worth more than a dollar. Yes, yes, yes. It was a. It was a. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what was really cool is you could give him a dollar. You could give George and Mo a dollar, I guess, and they would let him have some sour cream or milk. I gotta say, your two co-hosts are kind of assholes to you during that whole time. <laughs> they, they do brutalize me. Oh my, That's true. That was horrible. Yeah. John was Man. suffering, and they were refusing to let him have water or milk or anything. Oh, and John so, stuck with it. Did they get to choose if you get the relief? Like, if people purchase relief for you, can they withhold it? I'll get it. it. It's, it's just a question of when. Of yeah. It's a when? question of when I'm allowed to have it. How long they make me wait. Yeah. That's so cruel. Well, yeah. It's and what they immediate. did was, while well, John was clearly in agony, like, it wasn't, it wasn't a performance. I saw it. They it were negotiating obvious. just to do a shtick. Like, I don't know. Maybe he could have it. Maybe he could have a... Uh, mm. So cruel. That's How many my guys. Times have you done this, yeah. <laughs> How many I think times I've have done, you done the hot sauce that challenge? particular one three different times. Yeah. Mm. And you got the hottest one before. Mm -hmm. Oh, each time I get the hottest each one, time. but this time it's 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 a new set. It's a set of hot oh. sauce called Crazy Ass. This is Crazy Ass Two. <laughs> And I found that the hottest one was quite a bit hotter than Crazy Ass One. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, wow. My words on Stallone come back to haunt me. I would need Stallone money to do what you did. Uh, all right. Let's talk about something more pleasant, like uh, 1984 computer codes. Let uh, me get caught up awesome. in this 1980s news. So much more entertaining. I like a lot of 1980s computer code. I'll tell you that right now. So from Z, this is from ZDNet, you know, where we get all of our great 1980s pop culture stories. <laughs> we can now check out the source code for the 1980s programming language that sparked a revolution. Woohoo! <laughs> Checking out source code. <laughs> and you can go to a museum to look at it. Hmm. You know who wants to read the source code, don't you? Neo? I can't wait to read the source code. Oh, Robert. <laughs> That's going to be exciting. Yeah, finally. He's been waiting anxiously. Oh, yeah. It's about time. <laughs> about time. He, he's hashtag released the source code. <laughs> With Adobe's permission, the Computer History Museum has released the source code for an early version of PostScript, a programming language mm. programmed in the early 1980s by Adobe, which helped usher in desktop publishing and spawned the portable document format which we refer to as PDF, of course. So yeah, look, the PDF even has origins in the 1980s. I almost had a giggle fit there, but all of that just was really boring. <laughs> <laughs> we have an antidote. <laughs> I got to keep this Cat's like, tell me more about PostScript. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you're saying the resolution scale, they were vectors and not bitmaps. This is fascinating. <laughs> we know how to throw so cold water on her giggle fits. So, so funny. Uh, you guys might remember PostScript. Adobe first shifted mm. in uh, 1984, two years after the company was founded, and Apple co-founder Steve Jobs approached them to make yeah. PostScript useful for emerging laser printers. At the time, Apple launched its nearly $7,000 laser writer printer Ooh, that had PostScript built in in 1985, helping spark the desktop printing boom. That was a huge deal. Wow. I didn't have a laser printer. I, I, we had a mm -hmm. we had a dot matrix printer for the longest time. I don't remember mm -hmm. if we ever got a laser printer in the 1980s. That's we certainly didn't have seven thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember a group of friends that I knew yeah. uh, who were Apple fanatics, and they also were they wanted to dabble in desktop publishing. Like they went in together to oh. buy one of these amazing printers that I I don't know if it was a seven grand. I'm sure it cost yeah. a few thousand dollars though. Yeah, uh, but. There's no no question that what they could produce, it, it literally was because it was scalable, vectorized text and graphics all together. Mm -hmm. 
rather than, well, here's a bitmap and it looks like little chunky, you know, stair steps or whatever. Like it would draw perfect curves and lines yep. in the, in the letters. And it just looks so good. And that's what they wanted. And man, it delivered. Yeah. That's hmm. something. And of course now, you know, 40 years later, we don't really appreciate that. Right. You couldn't print as easily or as consistently or nicely as we do now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so yeah, John, that's exactly what their goal was to do what John said about the scalability of it. And they did accomplish that. Uh, and, and another other advance from Adobe was the typefaces for use with it. So I guess developing mm. the different uh, fonts. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned, Adobe's PDF file format, which was standardized in 2008, is actually based on PostScript and has since replaced it as uh, the uh, cross-platform document sharing that was uh, uh, developed back then. Uh, mm-hmm. What's interesting to me was that... Um, so, so like I said, they made these, this PostScript available for this museum, but uh, at 1984, the post, this programming code wasn't patentable because software w- couldn't be patented. <laughs> um, so they were very protective of it. But uh, the creator of the software said uh, in an interview that he, we wouldn't have uh, filed a patent anyway, quote, because to file a patent, you'd have to disclose. And we didn't want to disclose because it was mm-hmm. some of the magic of our implementation of PostScript, end quote. Oh. <laughs> did you guys have uh, personal mm-hmm. computers at home? Have I asked you that before? Probably. We did. We ended yeah. up with mm-hmm. a hand-me-down. Sure. Uh, I, I don't even rem- remember what it was, but I remember typing go to. Yeah, basic. You know, like mm-hmm. I learned a little basic <laughs> yep. and yeah. I I, what did we even do? It just made a pattern. You know, we, we could program a little basic thing yeah. on there. There was no printer though. The first printer in our house was the one I brought home with me from college. After oh, right. <laughs> the oh, dot matrix. Yeah. yeah. But we didn't, Yeah, we, we weren't really no. a computer household until much later. No, yeah. I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to anyone that I had more than my fair share of computers growing yeah. up. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I went right from my Atari 2600 to an Atari 8-bit computer. And I used wow. that for forever. And then I got an Amiga because that was the kind of mm-hmm. the bleeding edge. And I literally didn't get a Windows PC until Windows 95 came out. That was the first Ooh, like IBM okay. PC clone that I ever got. But I dabbled mm-hmm. in all those sorts of things. And, mm-hmm. and a, if you're a big enough dork, you have to have a dot matrix printer. And you the, <laughs> the, the tractor feed paper, and you tear yes. off the sides. Oh, and gosh. But it can only look so good. It's not yeah. like those cool PostScript printers were back then. It was yep. kind of junky. Guess what I still have? Mm. A dot matrix printer? Not the printer. The paper? The paper? The paper? from college? Because we had a lot of that in college. Hmm. I don't remember if it's no. actually from college, but <laughs> the guy down the street, yep. <laughs> he gave us a whole bunch of paper and I bring it in <laughs> to work, to my classroom. Oh, okay. And yeah. the kids go crazy with the, all the They're like tearing zip. off the sides? Yep. Zip. Yep. Zip. They, they zip. Some of them like the chew paper. on it. They just like sides off. <laughs> they chew on it. <laughs> it's a sensory, it's a whole sensory fill, experience. Fill their cheeks with the torn edges. Like chipmunks. This is fun, Miss Cat. Yeah. Yeah, the 80s my, were great. Um, my, in, the, in the 80s, my, thinking about basic language got me thinking about my uncle Chuck, who was my godfather, who was a programmer oh. in the 1980s. And he, he would take oh. me to work sometimes and show me. And it, they had like, it, it wasn't like a Cray computer, but they had a room of these giant, you know, processing mm-hmm. computers. And the discs mm-hmm. they used were like 10 inch floppy discs, like these giants. Oh, yeah. They were so, so, so impressive to me. But he had, I remember him taking <laughs> me aside and saying, You got to learn computer language, you know, programming because that's the future. You're going to make oh. a fortune. And of course, I wanted to be an actor. But you said no. <laughs> I, well, I did. I did learn basic, like you said, Kat. He gave me yeah. books and I would do stuff, you know, and we had uh-huh. our programming mm-hmm. computer. I made some little mm-hmm. games that were so terrible, but that, you know. Was there something less than 8-bit, John? Is there a 2-bit game I could have made? Because it was worth 2 bits. 
Yeah, just a plain old six five zero two with like the old Atari twenty six hundred, which basically didn't have even have sprites. It literally you had to oh, you had yes. to scan where were you on the screen mm-hmm. and turn that make it this color at this moment because I know where the the gun of the computer the TV is. It's like. Mm. Insanity back then. Yeah, I had my first computer was a Texas Instrument ninety nine four A. I think mm-hmm. we had sprites in a sense. They didn't call it sprites, but I think there was an eight by eight, you know, uh, image mm-hmm. that you could create. Well, they would have called them players back then, like player and missile or something like yeah, that. Was, yeah, yeah. I, I wanted a computer that could did sprites. Sprites because weren't they sixteen by mm-hmm. sixteen or something like that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. What's a sprite? <laughs> you know, a little fairy. <laughs> You know, have wings. Like a twink. <laughs> like a twink. Exactly. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Do I have to Google this now? <laughs> oh, do not first. do not Google twink. Sprite's okay. Yeah. <laughs> what, is, what are you talking about? What sprite? You, you know, I speaking? don't know that it's worth it. I mean, no one's listening to the show anymore. We could just, <laughs> since we're talking privately, we could just talk privately and not record it. <laughs> you can cut this out. <laughs> I'll give you a more in-depth tutorial later when this doesn't make Will Yo. mad. Fuck it down. We're we're trying to get this over with. What do you hear? Fuck the show. Fuck the show. (laughs) Okay. Hey, another 1980s news. There's a new book by author Richard Martin coming in. I thought this was interesting for a number of different reasons, including the fact Mm -hmm. that this is the first book he's ever published at 77 years of age. Mm, That's amazing. Mm. So you're saying there's a chance. (laughs) Yes, there is. Okay, boomer. So years ago, uh, Martin... read a story about a minister who climbed a flagpole to preach to the masses below. Martin was struck by the notion, including the fact that the minister's wife was running a small restaurant under the pole while her husband carried out his mission above. (laughs) Unfortunately, the pole was blown down by the uh, California winds after just a few days, and the preacher wound up in the hospital with a broken leg and no converts. (laughs) And no converts, by the way. That's the worst part of it. Well, I mean, yeah. He's like, God will help us and protect. Holy <laughs> Not my pole. <laughs> this is so uh, curious, this little story. <laughs> so Martin looked up the number of the restaurant, called the man's wife, and he asked her if her husband would go up and try again. And she said, not if I have anything to do about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> a perfect wife answer. And at that, Martin's imagination was off to the races, eventually creating Oranges for Magellan, this uh, novel that I mentioned to you ah. guys. And not only is this his first novel, but he's got three more novels now waiting in the wings. Wow. In this story, his protagonist, Joe Magellan, climbs a pole in early spring 1981, which is one of the reasons I bring this up, uh, determined to live on a 10 by 10 redwood platform at the top until he breaks the current world record of 440 days, held by his hero slash nemesis, Walter Shipwreck Blake. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, 70 feet below uh, Joe is uh, his artist wife, Clover, and young son, Nate, hoping to turn their tawdry cafe into a successful venture. So you can see how it's inspired by this actual story. Mm-hmm. What, what caught my eye about this, in addition to the fact that it was set in 1981, is the way this uh, story was titled was something to the effect of, uh, you know, harkens back to that pole-sitting craze of the 1980s, <laughs> which got me thinking, like, uh, were people sitting on poles? Ouch. And what does that even mean? <laughs> what? Yeah, I need to know about this. <laughs> I I don't associate it with the 80s, but I do remember the pole sitting craze. I always associated it more with like the 40s for some reason. I don't yeah. know why. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like people, like they would scale, kind of scamper up a telephone pole that's, what at the top is like a dinner plate, like it's eight inches circumference or something. Well, that's better and than- they would, just what I was they thinking. Were, right. No, it's no, no, it's, it's not like you took off your bicycle seat. I mean, we're talking about, there's, there's a little platform up there. Okay. 
<laughs> and, and they would try to stay balanced up there by yeah. not letting any part of them go below the top of yeah. the pole. And I'm like, I mean, I, I don't think of like, oh, those 80s fads like mm-hmm. Pac-Man, the Rubik's Cube and yeah. pole sitting. I don't see yeah, it as <laughs> necessarily icon- kind of iconic of the 80s, but mm-hmm. I remember it. We, we do have a, a clip of, of, of John taking off his uh, bite seat. Oh, ow, 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 <laughs> ow, 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 it's ow. Oh. by seven strides. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Ooh. oh. So apparently he will do anything for money. That's the next YouTube challenge. <laughs> oh my goodness. I am there, cat. Let's start a fund. He's got to pedal around his house. It's <laughs> <laughs> a little clown bicycle. Oh, ow, 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 but I did Google this because I was like, uh, this, mm-hmm. didn't, this wasn't a 1980s thing. And you're right, John. It actually began decades earlier. But there was a gentleman in 1984, H. David Werder, who temporarily mm-hmm. and unofficially set a world record for pole sitting. <laughs> he lived in a capsule made of plywood and giant cable spools atop a 30-foot pole in front of an appliance store. And guess what state this is? Like, what state would you imagine this would happen in? Oh, oh. Um, I, I expect it's my home state. Florida, Florida. Yes. Yeah, of in course. Clearwater, yeah. Florida. Oh, yeah. <laughs> At the time, the property was owned by Jersey Jim Towers Sr. It was a giant electronic appliance store that's since moved from hmm. the site. The owner thought uh, it would be a pretty good publicity to allow him to do it there. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this got me thinking about this guy trying to break a record. Once again, oh, it's, it's time, time to play. play. In Philadelphia, <laughs> it's worth 50 bucks. We're going to determine, uh, so you got maybe a little bit of a clue, because in the novel, at least, uh, the world record at the time is 444 days. How many days do you think H. David Werder sat atop this uh, 30-foot pole in 1984? Closest without going over gets it. Gets the, uh, wins an NFT. Hmm. I'm going to scribble on a napkin and take a picture of it. (laughs) Thank you. It can only increase in value. So I'll I'll, I'll bid first, Kat, and then you can go higher and lower. So a dollar. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just go one dollar right here. One day over. (laughs) I, I've tried pulling that One before. Day. I'm not allowed like, to. Anymore. You know, I, I, I'm just gonna. Sp- I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm yeah, gonna spitball that. I'm gonna spitball that he did not make it the year though he tried. So I'm gonna say he went 350 days. Okay. I'm gonna go a little higher. I'm gonna say mm-hmm. um, mm. 380. H. David Werder mm. sat atop that pole for 439 days, 11 hours, and six minutes. There you go. Wow. Cat, Cat wins. wins. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> They didn't Whatever. go over. Okay. Uh, all right. Here's part two of the game. <gasps> oh. Okay. Uh, so uh, while he was up there, he had uh, someone who referred to himself as his ground man. It was a guy that would, using a bucket, uh, give, a bucket. <laughs> bring food, you know, have him hoist food up to him. He also mm-hmm. supplied him with water for mm-hmm. drinking and bathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also would, uh, when Werder would lower his uh, pickle jar down, uh, his ground man would empty it. Pickle jar. There weren't, pickle there weren't jar. pickles in it. There weren't pickles in it. Pickle uh. jar. <laughs> It was a pickle oh, jar once. Man. Okay, but what? According to his ground man, mm-hmm. approximately how many showers did he take during his 439 day uh, stint? Showers? How many times did he bathe over the course of 439 mm. days? <laughs> Just pictured the guy like aiming the hose. Up. Not 30. No, he, he hoisted the hose up. He's not trying a to a little hit him. to the left. Down now. Yeah. <laughs> Get in the crevices. <laughs> Are you using it on jet? Dude! <laughs> I'm gonna... I just imagine 
the guy brings a power washer one day. Just <laughs> blast his nuts right off. Better now? You picky bastard. You're good for Sorry. three weeks at least. Yeah, that'll clean the crevices. <laughs> All right, cat. I'm going to say, um, uh, how about 50 times? Okay. John, what do you think? One dollar. <laughs> one time. John thinks he showered one, one time. time. John, I, I, I was thinking, I was thinking like the time. 10 range. Okay. Was uh, it literally one time? No, literally? no you're what? actually, John, you're still closer. Uh, he showered Ooh. for, according to the, his uh, grounding here, for approximately 20 times, maybe. 20. Said, maybe. Okay. Only 20. Yeah. yeah. 10 yeah. was going to be my guess, except yeah. you went much higher than my guess, so I did one dollar. So. Yep. Right, so we're tied. We're tied, Cat. We can so share this victory. We are. Werders, he vowed to, look, this guy had no interest in coming down, right? Because he vowed to stay up there until the price of gasoline went down to 50 cents, which you say, okay, well, maybe he's trying to make a point. But oh. he had a list. He had a list of uh, things he wanted. He also wanted there to be peace in the Middle East. He wasn't coming really? down also until the federal government raised the speed limit to 65 miles per hour until all POWs and MIAs were accounted for in Vietnam mm. and until Tampa got the Super Bowl. <gasps> Well, uh, wow. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> his wish list there, yeah. all hinging upon whether he stayed on the pole or not. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Well, you'll never guess which of those became true. Uh, but the Super Bowl came to Tampa. And so, <laughs> even though the owner of the store had ignored, uh, ignored, uh, word for a year, he started getting pressure from City Hall to get him down. <laughs> Since the Super Bowl was coming, the city commission did not want the pole sitter blemishing a primary gateway to the beaches. Uh -huh. He's an attraction. Uh, That's not a blemish. Come on. Have you seen Clearwater? <laughs> That's right. In 1984. This is a great thing. <laughs> you should put up a sign. Home of <laughs> the pole sitter. <laughs> the pole sitter. Uh, the city limits. Did so this the, guy have a nickname? <laughs> he needs a nickname. I don't, I don't know that he did. Uh, so the city commissioners ordered the police chief to do something. Eventually, Towers, the owner of the, uh, the the property there, had his lawyer drop an eviction notice. And eight days before they forced Warner down, they they left the eviction notice down in the in the bucket of the pole, but he would not pull it up. Mm. Nope, he was only sending the pickle jar down. I was going to say, stop accepting the pickle jar, and he'll come down real fast. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, um, these pickles are piling up up here. <laughs> It's <laughs> the imagery that you you paint. Oh my god! Uh. Some, some some's got to give pickles for everyone. <laughs> this isn't a load bearing pole. Uh. That was so bad. <laughs> Uh, so eventually, the, the police chief went up to Werder's capsule on a fire department cherry picker. Oh. Uh, he, along with the uh, captain of the police, pleaded with Werder and got absolutely nowhere. Then, out of frustration, the police chief said, I'm really freezing my ass off here. And finally, for some reason, that motivated Werder to come down. Really? Yeah. The, the, the police chief saying yeah. he was freezing. That and he came up with, with a power drill. He was going to start yeah. taking the bolts out. Oh, John! <laughs> you know, there's, there's more to this story. There's more to this story. <laughs> including the fact that uh, at one point, some drunk guy tried to climb, climbed the pole and tried to get up on the platform. Oh. And when he reached the platform, Werder started hitting his hands with a hammer until the guy let go. <laughs> Jeez. And that guy was taken to jail. And oh, some wow. other guys that were visiting from Connecticut uh, stumbled out of a nearby bar drunk 
begged him to come down when he wouldn't, they started removing the bolts. And, really? Uh, yeah. And I just made uh, that up. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh. And he was, he threw something at them until he was able to get them to go away. I can't remember. Oh, what it was. Pickle, he was throwing it. <laughs> Look out below. <laughs> you were warned. Pickles incoming. That's assault, brother. <laughs> uh, but he was able to, they were able to chase them away before he, they removed enough bolts to, uh, for the pole to come down. But he, he Werder does say that at some point he does feel like he was in danger of his life at that moment. Uh, and and oh, then yeah. his ground man cemented the bolt so they couldn't uh, be removed. Oh, his yeah. ground man. <laughs> the pickle man. All right. Hey, was another, that like his best friend? No, it was just a dude. This dude. You know, it, it, <laughs> <laughs> we're going on way too long about this. I realize we're talking for like over a half hour on this. Probably just one thing. Right. Like, this is the best part of the show. You keep bringing this up. What are you talking about? So his ground man, who was, so the, the owner of the property is named Jim Towers. This, his ground mm-hmm. name is named Ben Towers. No relation, but Ben, okay. when he heard the police were coming in an effort to keep the police at bay, he mm-hmm. said he started a rumor that a Werder was armed and before he came down, he would start shooting. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. supposedly trying to help Werder. So instead mm-hmm. what the police showed up was oh, with was a bunch no. of sharpshooters that they had oh. on roofs around <laughs> ready oh, to no. take this guy out. And the police mm. chief said, if Werder hadn't come down, they were just going to cut the bolt down. Mm. Don't shoot till you see the corn and the pickles. Oh, <laughs> no. Brought to you by Del Monte. Del Monte. Right. Well, hey, you, you were hoping that these would these would be discussion yes, points. Yes, exactly. I mean, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. It worked. I should, I should mention, I brought that all up Care, because- what you asked for. Because, don't forget, we're talking about- uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's going to love this. Author Richard Martin's book, or Oranges for Magellan- and not pickles, oranges for Magellan, will be launched <laughs> by Regal House Publishing on December 13th. Yes. Maybe he could work some of these things into it. It's a nice story. Yeah. It'll he has two, two sequels coming. <laughs> yeah, you got to step up your game. Yes. Yeah, something, you know. <laughs> yes. This time the pickles are personal. So, yeah. You know, you got some kind of clever thing. Pickles for Mad- Magellan. Power washing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Figure in there somehow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In other 1980s news, per deadline, Mike Flanagan and Trevor Macy reveal that a Dark Tower adaptation is in the works. Mm. I know what you're saying. Haven't we had one? Yeah, we did recently, but uh, yeah, at least talk, yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. But after six years of creating and producing for Netflix, the duo behind the Haunting TV franchise and mm-hmm. Midnight Mass, I absolutely love Midnight Mass. I did not mm-hmm. watch any of the Hauntings, although I have friends that keep telling me to watch them. Mm-hmm. It's great. Yeah, yeah. But Midnight Mass is. I loved Midnight Mass. A little talky, but whew, such great concepts in there. It's really smart writing. But mm-hmm. anyway, so they're they're moving now from Netflix to Amazon Studios. And one of the things they're taking with them is their screen adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower, which creator Flanagan envisions as a TV series to run for five seasons, followed by two standalone features. Wow. That's, <laughs> Hubris much? Right. Holy crap. <laughs> that's, yeah. Wow. They'll undoubtedly yeah, good, be canceled after two seasons, though, right? Yeah, good luck finishing season one, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> With that kind of confidence. Well, on Netflix, you know, I mean, that's what would happen. Netflix cancels shows know, when they're yeah. good. Yeah. 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 But, I mean, they have a good pedigree. I mean, if anybody can do it well, the guys that did The Haunting... I can yeah. see doing well with with Dark Tower, I suppose. But just saying, it's going to be five seasons and two films, and then we'll be rich. And that's that's the outline. Just green light, please. Well, in, in an interview mm-hmm. with Deadline, Flanagan and Macy, who are known for their extensive film and TV work in the horror game genre, 
uh, broke the news that they acquired the rights to the Mammoth book series. Now, fans of this series, if you're familiar with it at all, you know it began with its first volume, The Gunslinger, which was published in 1982. It, uh, it joined actually together five uh, short stories that King had published between the years 78 and 81. Um, but then from that, he went on to uh, produce or, or publish rather a total of eight novels in this story, drawing from multiple genres, dark fantasy, science fantasy, horror, and of course, Westerns. Flanagan revealed that he has written a pilot script and season outlines for The Dark Tower, which he described as, has been his dream project. Uh, mm. Now, as I mentioned, you probably remember, they've been trying to make this thing into a series, uh, into movies for a while now. They managed to get one movie done in 2017 starring Idris Elba and Matthew McConaughey. I never yep. saw it. I was excited about it, but I heard it wasn't so fantastic, so I just avoided mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't read, I also Same. didn't read the books though either though. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's the pedigree of Stephen King that has me interested in the story at all. Well, honestly. it's supposed to be fantastic. And yeah. just the idea that it melding these different genres together, many of them that I, I love, like fantasy in a Western, mm-hmm. that's cool already, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, mm-hmm. But uh, as you mentioned, uh, these guys are good at what they do. Uh, among the many things that they've done together include the uh, some other Stephen King adaptations, like 2019's sequel to The Shining, Doctor Sleep, oh, which right. Flanagan actually wrote and directed. Mm-hmm. Oh, did he? Okay. Uh, I love that movie. That movie's great. Is it? I think. All right. And finally, another 1980s news. One other bit of movie news here. Also per deadline, Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel taps Gil Keenan, I'm going to say. Kenan? Mm, that sounds right. Keenan or Kenan? Uh, to direct with uh, the previous cast returning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the question is, do we need a, uh, you know, do we need a Reitman to direct us for it to be good, I guess? Well, but he's still involved. He's just mm-hmm. not directing. So it's not like he's jumped ship, right? We're still going to have, we're still going to have a Reitman, you know, in, yep. in the head office at least. Mm-hmm. Right? swapping roles, right? Well, uh, you know, Kenan or Keenan, one of those guys, Kenan. I'm mm-hmm. going to say Kenan because I think there's only one E in it, Kenan. Okay. Uh, Kenan actually co-wrote Afterlife with uh, with uh, Jason Reitman. So, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also executive produced it with him. So yeah, in, in a sense, there's just one little change there that he's going to mm-hmm. become the director of the film instead of uh, Reitman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Reitman's going to be a producer. Yeah. Yeah, and they're yeah. co-writing it together still. There's a Venn diagram there. I guess to John's point, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, not much has changed. Cool. Um, it doesn't worry me too much. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah, it, they captured the spirit, huh, no pun intended, of Ghostbusters pretty oh. well with Afterlife, I think. And oh. Yeah. yeah was, right. I wish I'd planned that. That nice. was clever, but I didn't. <laughs> but I mean, I, look, I trust those guys going forward, We're, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're swapping chairs. No big deal. While not much fun. is known about the sequel, sources say the plan is to return to New York City and the iconic firehouse made famous in the mm. original Ghostbusters films. Yeah. Now that's kind of tied to how the ending is, right? Because, uh, yeah. yes. yeah. yes. uh, mm-hmm. Winston's got like a lot of money mm-hmm. and he's fixing up the firehouse again. Right. It appears he mm-hmm. purchased the firehouse yeah. or, or is mm-hmm. renovating it or both or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we talked around the time we talked to Ernie Hudson, I think there was talk of it being a series that he was going to head up maybe a series, but maybe those rumors were actually confabulating the fact that he was heading up the Quantum Leap series. Oh, um, gotcha. Which yeah. he had to have shot or some some amount of it by then. I would think. Well, maybe right. not shot, yeah. but maybe he had the deal by then. Right. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding his new gig, Kenan said, it's an absolute honor to pick up the proton pack and step behind the cameras for the next mm-hmm. chapter. Hmm. For the mm-hmm. next chapter of the Spangler family saga, I uh-huh. just wish I could go back to 1984 and tell that guy to get off that goddamn pole. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. A weird crossover there. <laughs> he said, "I just well, okay. The first part's true. I just wish I could go back to 1984 and tell the kid in the sixth row of the Man Valley West that one day he was going to get to, to direct a Ghostbusters film." Holy cow! Right? I How love cool is that? that that's quote. that's awesome. 
Yeah, that's it's mind blowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I can't say I've seen any of uh, Kenan's other films. He's directed uh, Monster House, City of Ember, and last year's A Boy Called Christmas. Seen Monster House? Yeah, you see that? Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a kids animated show. I yeah. think is the one I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter really enjoys, so he directed that, and that's one she watches over and over. So it's got uh, it's got staying power. So that's good news. Is that right? You know, I sometimes think to myself, I wish I could have told that 18 year old in uh, yeah. the Hall of Sciences that someday she'd be co-hosting a podcast. <laughs> in the Hall of Sciences? I don't know. Oh, okay. I'm trying to think of the name the of the building. <laughs> yes, the tall. Well, yeah, yeah. That would have been more. You know, this guy's hair I'm cutting. One day I'm going to host a podcast with him. I don't know what that is. <laughs> What's a podcast? <laughs> but first, so mind-blowing. between That's now and then, I'm not going to talk to him for 30 years. At all. Mm. And then yeah. we'll become great friends. Yep. <laughs> mind-blowing. And Kat would be... But what's a podcast? Well, it's like radio on the internet. But what's an internet? Oh, crap. <laughs> it's like, never mind. You'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. You know what? You do something else with somebody else. All right? I, I can't only take you so far. Fuck this show. That was Will traveling from the future. Not to be confused with future Robert. Totally different. All right. Hey, on that note, that was 19... 19- oh, shit. Oops. <laughs> See, it doesn't... I hate this boy. This show. I thought I was getting a whole show without getting buzzed. Hey. <laughs> that was 1980s news. Hey, our independent podcast is brought to you every week by folks just like you. So if you'd like to help us out, please follow us on the podcast platform you're listening to right now. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share an episode on Facebook. All of these actions just take a moment and are 100% free. But if you'd like to chuck in a buck and help us keep publishing the show week after week, please visit us at 1980snow.com slash support to find out how you can send us a dollar or two. And thank you so much. It means a lot. Hey, in a moment, it's, I know it seemed like a lifetime for John and Kat, but in a moment for everybody else, we're going to speak, I'm going to speak with John Walsh. You guys are going to hear me talk to John Walsh. Great guy, super knowledgeable, uh, just a really cool job to have, you know, among mm-hmm. the many jobs he does. Mm. But like I mentioned, we're going to talk about Doctor Who, these two particular films from the 1960s. He and I go on an adventure where we, you know, journey rather, where we talk about, uh, much like Doctor Who, we talk about uh, the 1980s and some other mm-hmm. years. But the 1980s, of course, because for me, Doctor Who has a certain significance. Mm, and yeah. uh, you can save it from when I talk to him. And it may be for you too, because it turns out Doctor Who wasn't particularly really big in the, in the, in the U.S. in the 1980s. And John gave me some mm-hmm. stat about that. Uh, but I don't mm-hmm. remember. He'll tell you. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering if you guys, did you, do you, have you ever watched Doctor Who? Do you like Doctor Who? Doctor Who? Are you asking <laughs> that as a question right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've certainly watched my... I would say my fair share, but no more of Doctor Who. I've seen plenty of it. Yeah. Like I can name four or five doctors for you. My roommate and lifelong friend, Jason, is just a, what do they call him? A Whovian, a Whovaholic. I don't know what they're <laughs> called, but uh, yeah. I mean, he introduced it to me in college, which was probably was like 89 or 90 or so when we were in college. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and we're going back watching the old stuff with John Pertwee and mm. uh, like some of the black and white stuff even. And wow, okay. while, while I appreciate it, I found that it moved too sm- slowly for what I was expecting out of modern media, but, yeah. mm-hmm. but, but I, I appreciate it and I can, uh, mm-hmm. I can see why it's popular. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about you, Kat? Well, I'm not certain that I've ever seen a whole hmm. episode. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen parts of it. I remember being very aware of Doctor Who yeah. mm-hmm. in the 80s because some of my family members were into it and they talked about it. So I've heard the 
what is it, the Daleks and the mm-hmm. the oh, Terminate, yes. And exterminate, yeah, terminate. Um so is that it? Terminate or exterminate? Wait. <laughs> exterminate. Actually, Kat, Ex- it's exterminate, not terminate. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm familiar with it, but it's not any sort of a uh, passion of mine, but it's just always been running in the background mm. of my life. <laughs> yeah, my, I remember, and again, I think, look, John's going to explain it. I, I'm trying to talk off the top of my head here, but I remember that it was introduced. Maybe we got the, re, I think we got the reruns in the eighties uh-huh. for the first time in the yeah. U S and so it became mm. huge. Um, so know. for, for us, even though he, it was, he was the like mid to or late seventies, just a touch into the eighties. Doctor who, he was my doctor who Tom Baker wore the okay. giant scarf. Uh, sure. Anyway, he was my doctor mm. and uh, I don't remember how or I could catch episodes regularly or if they were even shown in order. I, do, mm-hmm. I think they were on like a UHF channel or something because mm-hmm. we were getting BBC program. We've talked about watching Mighty Python before. And what about PBS? Maybe, maybe the, I don't think it was on been, yeah. PBS, but maybe it was. Yeah, yeah. it could have been. And PBS. as I recall, it was it was serialized here in the U.S. because initially they're like two and a half hour long stories that they mm-hmm. chopped up into serialized episodes mm. that stopped at inexplicable places to do. <laughs> oh my gosh! To go see the. 30 minutes the next day and 30 minutes the next day. And so it could be hard to watch that. Yeah. It was Mm -hmm. like, there were like movies in the UK. You had to watch them. They ran all afternoon. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, Mm -hmm. and and certainly there are the movies because we're going to talk to Mm -hmm. John about those too. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I just remember being like my imagination just being so, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of on fire because these, uh, you know, by then, by the time I had seen these, I'm certain I had seen a new hope, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, uh, Disney's The Black Hole, oh. The Black Hole, which, and those were movies for me, sci-fi movies that really just, I remember them just really feeling like, I don't know, inspired to go on these sci-fi adventures, you know, that I never could. Hmm. But uh-huh. Doctor Who was this one that was like, anything could happen. This show's like bonkers in yeah. like the best possible way. Like those felt Ooh. on rails compared to that show. And that uh-huh. was something that made it, I don't know, even more fun to watch. Wow. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and of course it had time travel. And it may be why mm. I love time travel because that ah. was probably my, I can't think of anything earlier than that that I'd seen, I think. That might've been the first. Certainly a selling point. That was my problem with Doctor Who is he didn't time travel enough. Like yeah. keep doing it the whole episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and it makes sense in hindsight now, you know, it wasn't until probably 10 years ago that I learned that they initially were much longer episodes. So you could go a whole like, it's Tuesday and no time travel. Well, cause yeah. he just did it. Oh, earlier ah, in the long movie, but in that yeah. in that day, he might not time travel at all. I'm like, why are we doing the cool stuff? Well, because it's <laughs> it's a little exposition heavy. Because I got to fill two and a half hours with one story. But yeah, oh, <laughs> very cool. Huh? Hmm. Wish I had talked to you guys before we did the interview. Like it usually works out. Now this is whatever. <laughs> anyway, you know, hey, look, there's a place where we could look, uh, you know, find out all about this, and it's John's book, Doctor Who mm-hmm. and the Daleks, the official yeah. story of the films. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, nice. folks mm-hmm. in the U.S., it'll be available in just a little while. Uh, to, you can pre-order it everywhere books are available right now, and if you're in the U.K., you can get it right now. Lucky you. Okay, hey, mm-hmm. we'll be back in just a moment with our guest, John Wall. <laughs> Our guest today is a double BAFTA-nominated filmmaker and an award-nominated author. Prior to his latest book, 
Our guest published two revelatory books about 1980s fan favorite films, Flash Gordon and Escape from New York. Both books are the official stories of their respective films created for the studio that currently owns their rights. This month, our guest will publish Doctor Who and the Daleks, the official story of the films. It tells the fascinating behind-the-scenes story of the two 1960s big-screen adaptations of the world-renowned TV show. The book is available everywhere for pre-order, including from our favorite store, bookshop.org. Please welcome to the show, John Walsh. Hey, Will. Great to be back. Thanks for, for having me back. Likewise. So very excited. And I gotta, I've got to say, I am so impressed with the... Uh, how you're able to create these books, it seems like with such regularity and still have them be as uh, information packed, have so many goodies, you know, as far as uh, behind the scenes and photo photographs from the, you know, contemporaneous photographs. I don't know how you find the time to do it. Um, well, I, the thing is, Will, I, I treat this like a documentary. Mm. So instead of the end product being a program for TV or for a, for a cinema release, yep. it's in paper form. So I, I'd attack it in the same way. Who are the contributors I want to speak to? What are the questions that are still unanswered about these various films? No. You know, Flash Gordon had three times or nearly four times the budget of Star Wars. So why was there no complex special effects in there? Because it was filmed two or three years later than Star Wars. Mm. So these questions kind of kicked around in my head for years when I should have been learning at school and at college <laughs> and you know, getting a, a career in yes. something much more established. Right. Nope. It was still going around in my head. Why did they not use this optic system on Flash Gordon when they right. used it on Superman the movie? They had the money. Yeah. <laughs> so for Doctor Who and the Daleks from 1965 and the sequel, Daleks Invasion of Earth 2150 AD, gosh, that's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I had a bigger challenge because the films are older and they were made on a much smaller budget. In fact, this film pairing is the lowest budget films I've ever written about in, in one of these big coffee table art books. Mm. So getting high quality images and new images, which for, for films from the 60s is, is kind of a, a big ask, and to find out the stories when many of the key players are no longer with us. Right. It was, it was quite the task, but I'm a big Doctor Who fan, mm. big, big Doctor Who fan. So um, it was kind of like a poison chalice in a way because people have asked me before, is that a good thing that you're a big Doctor Who fan, you're mm. doing this book? And, and generally speaking, it, it can be not a good thing because you, your inner geek can kind of trap you and, and make you shoot off into different directions. Right. And so you have to be quite kind of controlled about it. Yeah, so that, people who pick this book up will, who know the film will be like, well, I know that. I've seen that before. But there'll be lots of people who maybe are fans of Peter Cushing and don't know the film or are fans of new Doctor Who and are looking back at this as old Doctor Who. So you have to tell the whole story. Right, And because it's officially licensed by Studio Canal, who own the film now, um, it has to be the, the right story. So I had access to their, their full archives for the very first time, which was, which was great. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty, you know, you, you mentioned about, uh, again, having the access, having the photo, photographs. There was a bit of time travel magic done because the quality of the photos, and as I understand, they were restored somewhat. You would never know it. I mean, there's some of these images of Peter Cushing that you, I would swear were taking, taken yesterday um, that really just trans ports you to that time and at the same time seems so uh, contemporary. It's really fantastic and surreal at the same time. 
people are wanting to do effectively a a, a 4k if you like or an 8k book when you think <laughs> right. of your favorite films that have been restored right. you know the thing you're most looking for is perhaps good sound and so on but you want to see it in such pin sharp accuracy that you can almost touch right. those people so whether it's a reissue of star wars or star trek the original movie series has come out now in 4k which is very exciting um but these these films they came out in 4k and because they'd been shot on technoscope which is the poor man's cinemascope then um it was sometimes a, a double-edged sword because it might actually belie the, the lower budgets and you mm. might see the seams and everything and so on. But actually it made the film really fizzle and come alive. So for the book, I felt if they've done that for the film, we need to make sure the book is going to be to that standard right. and also find things that Studio Canal don't own and mm. go beyond their archive, which is beautiful and wonderfully restored. And because I'm a fan, I know which pictures have been printed before so if we're printing them again, we're going to print them wider so you can see more of the mm, edges right. or we're going to print alternative pictures. And some have been beautifully restored, as you say, um, stunningly so. And, you know, Tyson Books have done a wonderful layout where those crown jewels of the book, if I can call them that, really pop. Right, right. Now, I've got to confess, I am of the, I think, the latter category that you described as far as folks who, fans of Peter Cushing, even a fan, you know, again, again, I'll be be honest with you, a limited fan of Doctor Who, the series, and I'll explain that in just a moment, uh, but not familiar with the films. Um, and, and I guess, and that's for, for me, well, but um, I guess I should say that, uh, and I say all that to say that my love of the Doctor, though, was kind of surprising and uh, happenstance because uh, when I was a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, my dad and I, we, you know, most of our relationship was watching TV and somehow I want to say it was public broadcasting. So I know some shows we would find on the UHF channel, but um, I think the BBC shows were on public broadcasting here in the U.S. And we watched three shows. It was Monty Python, Faulty Tower from the BBC, Faulty Towers and Doctor Who. And at that time it was uh, Tom Baker, uh, the fourth doctor who, you know, as you know, carried us through the seventies and just barely into the 1980s. But he was my doctor and probably my uh, primer, you know, for time travel science fiction, you know, which got me ready for the movies of the late seventies and early eighties that, uh, you know, I just, I have now a lifelong love of time travel films and shows that I believe started then. Um, I, again, I'm not sure how or, or, or whether to what extent it was popular in the 1980s that a kid, you know, in Jersey City, New Jersey would discover it. Do you have any sense of that? I do, you know, and, and to give people a potted history, because people always think Doctor Who was only big in America in the 80s, and mm -hmm. that's when it was first shown. But I mean, it was shown as far back as 1965 in, in Canada, mm -hmm. which although people in America don't consider that America, you know, people <laughs> in Europe think of that as North North America. Yes. Um, so, um, and in the seventies, um, that's when United States first got Doctor Who in 1972 okay. with Time Life Television and, uh, they had syndicated episodes of John Persuey. Mm. Um, but it really wasn't until the eighties, as you say, and PBS started to rerun the, the, the color programs. So that would be the, um, uh, John Persuey episodes and of course all the Tom Baker ones. And then into the 80s, there was a selection of different doctors. But 1983 was the high water mark because it was the 20th anniversary. The five doctors, which was like a feature film, um, which kind of had all the five doctors in it, although mm -hmm. the first doctor had died. So he was a lookalike. The fourth doctor didn't appear. So they used archive footage. And for the press call, they used a, a dummy from Madden Two Swords 
and mm. the lineup with the other doctors. <laughs> is that right? You, you, you could never do that now. You can't imagine making a, an Avengers assemble and one yeah. of them doesn't turn up and you get like a, yeah. <laughs> that'll do, Madden Two Swords, um, <laughs> if only. Um, so for viewers in the United States, definitely the 1980s, definitely PBS, and definitely the Colour Doctors, so yeah. Pertwee, Baker especially, and then Peter Davidson would be your brand new episodes in, in the early 80s. Right. And, you know, a much younger Doctor and much more what we expect today when we see modern Doctor Who. Right. Um, but the interesting thing about the Peter Cushing films um, is Peter Cushing is playing a screen version of the first Doctor because Doctor Who famously regenerates when they want right. to get a new actor and there's a change of personnel and so on, like a new president or a new monarch. Um, you know, you, you get a whole new face and you, and you accept them in that part. So whether it's Roger Moore, James Bond or, or Pierce Brosnan or, or Timothy Dalton. But in 1965, when the first film was shot, Doctor Who had been on TV for a couple of years, but they'd, they'd only had the original Doctor, William Hartnell, who, who played it older. He was only in his fifties, but he played it as a much older man, sort of Victorian gentleman. And then in 1966, when they made the next film, William Hartnell was still the TV doctor, but by the end of 66, they came up with this regeneration trick and Pat Trousen, um became the second doctor. Now, Peter Cushing was slightly frustrated because had he known, oh, I didn't have to do a kind of a, if you want to call it a karaoke version of right. William Hartnell. I could have done my own doctor. He might have done something very different. Right. Um, and later in the 70s with the same producer, Milton Sabotsky, who was from America, who produced these Doctor Who movies. He, he, um, he, he did At the Earth's Core, or Journey to the Earth's Core, where he played a very kind of Doctor Who-ish style character. But regeneration hadn't been invented then. The, the big selling point for these movies was it was in colour, because nobody had a colour TV set in, in the UK. Doctor Who was not in colour. The Daleks were not in colour. So come and see them in widescreen, in colour, in your cinema. Yep. And both films were outrageous successes. Um and we go into that in the book because there's some politics around that. And also there's a bit of awkwardness between the BBC, who we know is the home of Doctor Who, and these movies, yeah. which were licensed by the BBC at the time to be made, but now exist commercially yeah. separately and are two very different um, satellites that, 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 that move around in the Doctor Who universe. And so up until this book, because this is not a BBC Enterprises book, the two doctors, the original two doctors, Peter Cushing, if you will, the movie doctor and the TV doctor, William Hartnell, were not allowed, were not allowed to be on the same pages oh. or in the same mm. uh, product or had never been a book before. Right. And there was, there was lots of consternation about should we do a book? And if there's going to be trouble, let's get John Walsh in because he likes trouble. Right. Um, so, you know, for the, exactly. Yeah. And I, I don't even look like the majors, not even from a distance. <laughs> um, so, we were delighted the BBC worked with us on this. And we have William Hartnell and Patrick Trousen on the same page. And for, for casual viewers, they might think, so what? But for Doctor Who fans, it's oh, it's quite the moment. So I'm expecting the kind of Nobel Peace Prize people to, yes. to ring me at any moment with a sash or a tiara <laughs> well, or something. Only if I guess you bridge the different camps because, you know... Uh, well, I guess even before that, though, I'm curious, it seems like such a contemporary move to take something that's, you know, popular on television and say, hey, let's put it on film, uh, you know, and and change it. You know, again, we'll take what works and we'll 
we'll take the liberties to, to tinker with it. We don't care. But it, was it simply the idea that uh, maybe they could, le- again, a contemporary notion, we could leverage that. And again, more spectacle, color, bigger, that that was enough for them to, motiv- to be motivate them to put it on screen? Yes, absolutely. Milton Savotsky, who was uh, quite an ingenious American producer. Yeah. And, and um, I was very keen to write this book because Milton Savotsky is not a well-known name. He's not Dino De Laurentiis. He's, he's not um, David O. Selznick. You know, he's not one of those names that we often associate with Hollywood movies or making uh, these genre-breaking um, exercises. He made these two films. He made lots of the uh, Doug McClure films, The Journey to the Center of the Earth, The Land at Time Forgot. Mm-hmm. He was the producer of The Martian Chronicles with Rock Hudson in the early 80s. I'm a big fan of that. But significantly, he was the first producer on this planet to option a new young horror writer, Stephen King. Mm. So Milton Sabotsky, who's, I think, an, an unsung hero in this entire enterprise, saw something here that Doctor Who could work on the big screen, and, and, and it did. And he had lots of naysayers who were like, well, no one's going to come out of their lovely, cosy homes <laughs> to see it in colour and pay how much? Right. <laughs> you can see it on the television with your TV licence already paid for with right. the proper Doctor. <laughs> and it's like, well, he was right. After he opened this sort of floodgate, there had been other cinema and TV adaptations before, but by the mid-1970s, British cinema was full of it and kind of um, sitcoms that we wouldn't allow now on television because of their content were up in the big screen and having uh, movie versions. Um, On the Buses, the movie, which is about bus drivers and conductors, made more money in the UK than Diamonds Are Forever, the James Bond (laughs) reboot with Sean Connery in the early 70s. So it was big business because people recognised the brand. And even now, Hollywood will do a live-action version of a favourite animated classic. But if you know that, Pinocchio, oh, then gosh. <laughs> have this one too. Oh, yeah. and have another one on Netflix yeah. as well while you're at it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, and I'm sure they're all going to be fine, but uh, it overcomes the burden of having to explain to people what content is. You know, Milton Sabotsky, I think, doesn't get really the credit he should for that. And he was really quite the genius. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him. And of course, all the films you mentioned, and of course, the films he did with St- produced for Stephen King, I'm fans of and familiar with. So it was quite a, you know, a learning opportunity for me to, to, to see, to learn of his role in bringing it to Dr. Who to the screen. And wasn't it something like he paid like 500 pounds for the licensing rights? Yeah, it was a tiny amount of money. And uh, it, it, interestingly, one person who did very well out of it was Terry Nation who was the mm. creator of the Daleks for television. He, was, he became a bona fide millionaire. And so you, you can imagine in the 1960s being a millionaire in the UK, that's the equivalent almost of being a billionaire today, you can right. imagine. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's not much in the UK to spend your money on in the 1960s. <laughs> so other than just stroking the money at nighttime before you go to sleep, I'm not sure what much fun you guys have. Yeah, I was curious. Yeah, it strikes to me that, you know, you mentioned uh, Terry Nation. In the 1960s, it seems like he was doing what George Lucas was then, you know, lauded for accomplishing in the 1970s, which was holding on to the rights of this thing he created, in particular in merchandising, so that um, as they start generating uh, Dalek toys, you know, the cash starts rolling in. And to the to date, his estate still has the rights or, or to uh, approve anything that involves the Daleks. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. And it's, it's quite unusual, but um, the whole setup of Doctor Who was unusual at the time because in-house writers kind of refused to write for the show. A, a new producer came over from Canada, Sidney Newman, who wanted to do a new evening tea time show for families. And 
uh, as the BBC was at the time, but it isn't any longer. They, they were quite um, put out that this outsider, this foreigner from Canada, mm. had come over to tell us how to make uh, drama on television. We know <laughs> what we're doing. So as a result, he became quite isolated. So the choice of production personnel and creatives were all outside from the BBC. And Terry Nation was working with British comedian Tony Hancock at the time. And Terry wasn't really interested in doing Doctor Who. But uh, Tony Hancock was having a big drinking problem. Mm. The show he was doing went badly. He'd already turned down Doctor Who. And then when he was more or less fired after having a big row with Hancock on the set of his ITV show, he rang up the BBC and said, well, I'll do it then because I have a wife and two children. I have to pay the mortgage somehow. What is it you want? They said, all six episodes, one set in a kind of an outer space thing. And we want it with sort of aliens or robots or something. And they said, oh, okay. And he basically wrote it without any changes. And it became the first Dalek story. And it was just a phenomenal success. And, you know, all of Terry's fortunes changed at that moment when he just out of, um, I won't say sheer desperation, but out of frustration, wrote this mm. story. But it was in him. And, you know, he was a creative genius as well. He came up with Blake Seven, which I'm a big fan of, that mm. you may have seen on PBS in the uh, in the 80s. But um, it is unusual because people who were staff creative at the BBC got no share of the toys and merchandise that followed. But Terry was quite um, clever about it. He had an agent. They cut him a deal. So anytime you need to do anything with the Daleks, you've got to check in with uh, Terry Nation's people. Um, but the, this is why it becomes quite awkward with the Doctor Who movie book, because that's owned completely by someone else, Studio Canal, which is now one of the world's biggest film libraries. And of course, produces films like The Railway Children Return and Paddington. So anytime you want to do anything with the movie Daleks in terms of merchandise, whether it's a soundtrack or some figures or toys or this book, and it's it's always a big to do, mm. and it's put people off in the past, and it's um, it's a shame really because I would like to have bought this book ten, twenty, maybe thirty years ago, but it's it's great for me that this didn't happen, and I did Flash Gordon or Escape yeah. from New York <laughs> because it gave me a chance to come along and say, oh, oh, oh I'll do that, yeah, <laughs> and I did. So, you know, I mentioned uh, a few moments ago how contemporary it seems to adapt a television or any property into a film. And, uh, you know, nowadays, again, it's, it's, it's so common for there to be controversy almost immediately because you've got the camps of the folks who are the purists and claim that this film adaptation is not exactly like the source material and other folks who only know the film and therefore become fans of, you know, even the source material then ultimately. Uh, when they make this film for this TV show that, you know, is, is only a couple of years old and is starting to gain popularity, what is the reaction to it? Well, the reaction from a, a general audience, let's not say the hardcore fans, the general audience was great. We got to see mm. the Daleks in colour. We like this cast. What we see, what should we see next week? But for people like me, and I suspect you will, you know, if you're a major <laughs> Doctor Who fan, you'll be like, oh, hang on. What, what yeah. was that? <laughs> Hang on, this guy is an earthling. Right. He's not a, he's not from Gallif Prey. Because on TV, he's this complex chameleon character who's who's stolen the TARDIS, is hiding on Earth, has this granddaughter Susan, and is quite crotchety. And yet the movie version, Milton Sabotsky decided to go for a Swiss family Robinson approach mm-hmm. and wanted Peter Cushing so he'd have a wide North American appeal. And 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 changed his fundamental aspects so that he became an earthbound human grandfather, created this invention in his back garden, and then decided to test it one night when his granddaughter's 
his older granddaughter's boyfriend happened to turn up with a box of chocolates. And, you know, you can imagine me pitching that to you now, if you're the head of, <laughs> of Amazon Prime or Netflix, yes. you'd be saying, uh, can, can someone get Walsh out of here? Um, so once Milton had the license, Milton wrote this treatment up, this, this screenplay for it. So he knew exactly what he was doing. Of course, Doctor Who at the time wasn't this revered franchise that's been put on multiple podiums. There was no fan base. There was no organizations to represent fans. But by the 80s, when you were watching Doctor Who on television on PBS, the movies weren't that highly regarded Mm. because you just had like one of the best doctors, if not the best doctor, Tom Baker. Um, I've I've worked with two doctors. I've worked with Tom Baker. He did a narration for me at film school for a Harryhausen documentary. And David Tennant's narrated a a, a film I made about children with disabilities. You can see both on on my YouTube channel. You know, to go from Tom Baker and watching his work, which is absolutely superb, and then maybe popping on the movies, you'll be like, oh, it, it's, it can be a jarring experience because of the style of acting, because of the interpretations from all the actors. But now, as we look back from 2022 perspective, it's considered a bit of a cinema classic. Those fans have softened over the years, and partly it's been because of the new, new series. Some fans aren't as keen on what's happened in recent Doctor Who developments. And so hark back to everything in the past, including less popular Doctors from the late 80s, and consider them all classics. Right. So when after Peter Davis and you had Colin Baker, then Sylvester McCoy, then the series was cancelled, was nearly cancelled after Colin Baker in the mid-80s, but then properly cancelled after Sylvester McCoy. He was like the last Doctor standing in the 80s. The critics, fans, everyone thought the last couple of Doctors didn't cut the mustard. Now, those series have been reissued on Blu-ray and certainly here in the UK and Europe, straight uh, shoot straight to the top of the charts, ahead of Bond, ahead of Marvel, ahead of Spider-Man, everyone else. And people are rebuying those standard definition shows that have been upscaled for HD for Blu-ray and spending the equivalent of, um, I suppose, 60 or $70 it would be in, in, in US dollars yeah. um, <laughs> for, for shows they've already got on VHS and yeah. DVD. So there, there is a vast well of, of love and support for these series. And now Peter Cushing has been swept along with that, quite rightly, I think. And because of that momentum, this book has happened. And it's just a little bit trivia about the book. It was meant to come out in September. The entire print run sold out as a pre-sale. Oh, wow. So when it Great. went on to Amazon, shot straight to number one. I was like, oh, look, it's got number one, a little sash on it. I've never had that before. And it stayed there and stayed there and it just got sold out completely. So the book was moved back to um, end of November now for the UK. I think it's just early December for the US. Right. Because it was the f- first book I did of my uh, four books so far that sold out before it got into the shops. That's fantastic. Congratulations. I'd love to take the credit for that. I'd love people think it's not because it's Doctor Who, it's because it's John Walsh. Not the most yes. wanted John Walsh, but the other one, the most right, desired the other one. John yes. Walsh. Well, it's the John Walsh who's written about so many other wonderful, you know, fan favorite uh, science fiction uh, properties so far. So yeah, they get the momentum. So, and I wonder though, so, you know, this new love, I guess, newfound love, it seems maybe, or, or discovery of the Peter Cushing films. Look, early on, like you mentioned, there's so many non-canonical aspects to the film, you know, certainly in the 60s, relative, you know, compared to the television show. Where are we at? Like, how does this fit into the canon, if at all, in today's Doctor Who? Well, interestingly, Stephen Moffat, who was the showrunner and for Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, 
and was there for the um, the uh, transformation, the regeneration of Jodie Whittaker. He said that um, he loves those Doctor Who films, and he recreated the inside of Matt Smith's TARDIS to have the white inner doors that Peter Cushing's TARDIS has on the interior as a slight homage. And when it came to the uh, 50th anniversary uh, back in uh, 2013, he was keen to include the movie Doctor, the Peter Cushing Doctor, in there somewhere, but a deal couldn't be struck. Mm. So we talk about what he says in the book. He speaks to us and tells us where he sees Doctor Who fitting, that, that particular Doctor. And he does come up with a theory about how he is spinning around in the universe not quite knowing where he's from or giving a fake story that he's really a human from Earth. Mm. So if Peter, if um, Stephen Moffat can make the exception and allow Peter Cushing into that universe, I think the fans are thinking, oh, okay, Stephen Moffat has kind of sealed it with his approval. And I think that was really significant um, when he said that. And, you know, he had no axe to grind there and he had no, um, he had no reason to say that. There was nothing that he would benefit from doing that. And so he fully embraces uh, that doctor. So he could fit into that universe. So I could imagine in, in years to come, a CGI, if you like, piece of cushion, it won't be the first time. I was going to say, I think I've in, seen that before, yeah. In Rogue One, they did it, <laughs> right. um, which was um, spoilers for anyone who still hasn't seen Rogue One. Yeah. Um, but, but the Grand Moff Tarkin turns up there and it's it's quite surprising to see him. And I and I think it's it's mostly successful. It's good they did that. Um so I could see Peter Cushing as Doctor Who turning up in uh, in, a, in, in a kind of a future Doctor Who. But there was one of the things that actually frustrated people. He introduced himself as Doctor Who. Hello, I'm Doctor Who. Right. Um, <laughs> as if Who was his surname, like Smith or Jones. And of course, he's not ever referred to as Doctor, first name, Who, second name. Um, he's just the Doctor. Right. And Doctor Who is meant to imply who is he. But, you know, a lot of those aspects or quirks are particular to the film. And I think people have, have not forgiven them, but have allowed them to be part of the overall universe. So the obsession that fans had, which meant, no, it's not canon, don't speak to me. People have, have, have come to mellow in their older age, I guess. Yeah. Whatever makes, you know, ultimately the, uh, what, the narrative or, you know, it's just, or it could be, it, 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 there's a possibility that it ultimately enriches the narrative. So yeah, why not let it in? Um, yeah, I thought it was interesting how, you know, you point out he goes by Doctor Who and even the distinction between spelling out Doctor between a, instead of abbreviating Doctor. Um, I was wondering, I guess, thinking about how many of these things had to do with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Sabotsky being an American and thinking, you know, in, in sort of more may Ameri- what would appeal to, you know, I guess, uh, American audience or North American audience making these silly distinctions. I think he's right. You know, Milton was right. Milton was the only person who brought Doctor Who to the cinema screen and you know, for years, people have tried to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there, w- there was an Amblin TV version with Paul uh, McGann there in the mid-90s. But that originally was going to be a cinema version. Lots of well-known people have tried to bring it to the to the big screen. No one has succeeded. Only Milton Sabotsky, and he did it twice. Mm. And, you know, right up until today, no one has done it and even got close to it. Um, it's tantalizing. It's quite the poison chalice for many producers who have spent years and lots of their own money in pursuing what's been uh, a folly for them because they've lost money on, on this. Mm, that's curious, huh? With such an amazing, you know, a huge property, uh, hundreds of uh, episodes of television, hundreds of hours, hundred million fans easily around the world. 
that they wouldn't be able to figure that out. And maybe thank goodness, because, you know, again, to the point of sort of it being contemporary thing, I don't know. I don't know that it would necessarily be as successful as they were in the 1960s doing this because of social media in particular, maybe because of how ravenous people could be equally in favor and against something, um, you know, sort of uh, maybe killing an incarnation of it on screen today that wouldn't stand the chance and have the opportunity for the legs that this, you know, 60s films did. Absolutely. I mean, you know, plus because it's so successful, because it's a multi-million pound franchise, people are very tentative about the moves they make. You know, Milton got a great deal at a great time. Yeah. He did well out of it. Terry Nation did well out of it. The BBC, mm, less so. So maybe it was a, they felt chastened by the fact that someone else went off with one of their properties and did very well. Thank you very much. And meanwhile, the uh, the license fee payer, um, which is the, the great British public, didn't really get to see much back from that success. And yet he had been grown and nurtured in the garden that is the BBC, but then plucked away by uh, a usurper from, uh, from another country, an American, if you don't mind. And a yank. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and made money from it. So, you know, it's the more successful something is, sometimes the harder it is to, to do something with it. You know, Ray Harryhausen tried to do his sequel to Clash of the Titans, which should have been a shoe-in. And he had a script and he had uh, everything else for it. And it didn't happen. It's kind of like so frustrating. But that story is replicated in American cinema often. And there are many books you can get now on, yeah. on great sequels or films that should have happened. There's um, Ryan Johnson's version of what he would have done with the next Star Wars. Um, there's even the supposed J.J. Uh, Abrams cut coming to, to Disney Plus for a definitive final final version right. um, so i think when it's when it's that big and it has that many people's inputs it sometimes can dilute um what would have been one man's vision when it was milton you know milton did what he did it has stand it has stood the test of time it's had a 4k remaster ahead of any of the james bond films from that era or any of the james bond films mm. um you know when we think about the recent daniel craig films they've being made commercially available as 4K releases, but none of the other titles have. And I'm sure they will be eventually, mm. but it is a significant indicator that if you've had your film restored in 4K and reissued again to the marketplace, and I'm yeah. buying Doctor Who, is that for the fourth or fifth time? I'm losing count. That's something, you know, library titles that endure are, are really worth their weight in gold. And you look back at some of the big films in the day that had maybe William Holden or John Wayne or, um, Charles Bronson, who were the big A stars in their time, a lot of them are languishing on the shelves, haven't even been restored in 2K. That says it all, I think, because, you know, folks, again, uh, folks who became fans of this property like I did in the 1980s, uh, that's the only vote of confidence or maybe two votes of confidence you need to be able to, to check out these films from the 1960s is one, John's book. You know, this 4K thing aside, John's book, I guess, is the main thing. And check out John's book. And John, thank you so much for your time today, uh, helping us understand a little bit more about these films from the 60s that, again, have a maybe now a canonical connection to those uh, to our favorite doctors from the from the 1980s. Um, and we will make sure that folks go out and hmm, whatever. I'll plug your book earlier in the show and after the show. So I will just say. Uh, thank you for your time today, John. Well, my pleasure. And uh, for everyone listening to this fabulous podcast, I wonder how many yeah. people saw it in the cinema in the 60s and who actually saw it on telly like I did in the 80s. So this is very much an 80s oh. VHS film for, for people um, watching on TV because the film was a, a reasonable license and it had no 
adult content. It could be shown numerous times during the daytime. And it was a good scheduled filler, but it was in the 80s that this film had most of its airplay. It must be so cool to have access. Like, you know, look, we're going to ask you to do this book. Or or sometimes in these situations, John pitches the book. I want to write about this movie. And they're like, mm-hmm. all right. And then he gets access to, you know, a studio's everything, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be That's really cool. so cool. I learned something interesting. Yeah. I never thought about what Doctor Who meant. Of course, not watching the show. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, steeped in any of the, <laughs> anything. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize it's like, He's called the doctor. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, yes. but the name of the show is Dr. Who. I never really right. thought about that. But so yeah. Dr. Who is like, what, is that what people say? Like, yeah. Like, so right. if he says I'm the doctor and people say Dr. Who, it, is it's, that- it, they don't, they don't beat that drum too much, but they okay. definitely do. Cause that's his whole oh. name. He doesn't okay. have, he's not like, you know, my name is Dr. David Jingleschmidt or something. He's just, <laughs> he's the doctor. That's all he is. And so okay. people mm-hmm. quit, quit, put him in a box. Like, well, Doctor Who. I'm just the doctor. Just the doctor. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's 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 not used so a lot, clever, but though. it is used. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's clever how it's not the show's not called the Doctor. It's Doctor, doctor Who. That's right. definitely yeah. more, um, you know, it's a little more of a hook or a little, you know, more compelling. Yeah. <laughs> it's a show that I Curious. wish I could. Uh, I wish I had watched since the beginning, or even jumped in when they started it up again in what 2010 when it was huh, like Stephen yeah. Moffat did. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like, it's one of those shows that it's intimidating to me because there's so many oh, episodes, yeah. mm-hmm. but they've had I so many cool twists and turns and surprises. Like, especially <laughs> recently, David Tennant's coming back, but the rumors oh. are maybe he's not really the doctor. Maybe he's really a villain pretending to be the doctor, but we did maybe see- he's the master or something. Yeah, we did knows. see Jodie Whittaker transform into the doctor, into mm-hmm. him. I don't know. But, but that Ooh. stuff sounds so cool and wonderful and thrilling and surprising that if you're a fan- Mm-hmm. Just must be so, you know, engaging. But yeah. like I said, it'll take me too long to catch up. So I get discouraged. <laughs> so we'll watch Quantum Leap instead. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, if it comes back. <laughs> oh. January. Yes. And if yeah. you're a fan or you know a fan of Doctor Who, yeah. check out the book. I read it. Seriously, even if you're not a huge fan of Doctor Who, it's really fascinating how these films came together. Mm-hmm. And again, even the story about Milton Sabotsky. Uh, it's, it's pretty neat. Oh, cool. Um, but uh, be sure you look up uh, or, or pre-order rather uh, John's book, uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks, the official story of the films. Again, you can find it everywhere. I love bookshop.org because it supports independent bookstores. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So do that. Do it. Do it. And that's the show. Doops. <laughs> <laughs> I even said I'm going to be ready it's this time. Coming to Doops. <laughs> <laughs> Our show is brought to you every week, thanks in part to our early adopters like Kathy Burke, Rick Parker, and Karen Flieger. And thanks especially to our secret of our success level Patreon supporters, John Henderson, Craig Coletta, Marcus Mm -hmm. Taylor, and Tony Great. Yes. They're great. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, uh, each and every one of you and everybody that helps us support the show in one way or another. And hey, mm-hmm. you can support us too. There's plenty of free free ways to do it. Share an episode, subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on mm-hmm. Facebook. Uh, yeah. And if you need any other ideas or you want to find out how you can uh, toss us a dollar or two, visit us at 1980snow.com slash support. That's right. All right, hey. And leave us comments or send a message. Yes. Tell us about your pickle jar. Yes. <laughs> how big of a pickle jar would you need? Uh, how many showers would you take how many showers would you take 
Are we talking a 12-ounce pickle jar or are we going a gallon? Yeah. I mean, is it, did we buy it at Sam's or did we buy it at the drugstore? I guess store? it depends if you first eat the pickles, right? Because then you think like, uh, hmm. like matter, the law of conservation of matter and energy. <laughs> so, you know, 16, what is it, 32 ounces of pickles goes in. All right, what, what is happening? Well, there, but then there's a density question. Yes. <laughs> is there? Is there? Viscosity comes into play. All right, hey, we will talk to you again next time on 1980s Now. Until next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. This podcast is part of the 80s Ruled Network. Visit the 80s Ruled on Facebook for more 1980s awesomeness.